Amen. Yes, we can let the children go here this morning. And yes, he is just the same today. He's the same God. And we are going to talk about that again this morning. Well, we certainly appreciate... Hold on. We certainly do appreciate the opportunity to present uh, this ministry here with you this morning at Christian Bible Church, and we certainly do appreciate Christian Bible Church. Uh, John, thank you for those words earlier, but um, we so much appreciate our home church here and what a blessing you guys have been to us and to our family over these three years. It's hard to believe that three years ago when we, we first came, and uh, what a blessing it's been, and to present in our very first church, this new ministry that we believe the Lord has led us to called Truth in Time. And we do feel that God has called us to this. Uh, many of you know I was, we were in Virginia for uh, almost 20 years and served there with my father, Pastor Frank Hall. Some of you met him and, uh, as his assistant for almost 20 years. Didn't think I'd ever leave there. But uh, God called us to Illinois to work with my father-in-law. Whew! <laughs> but it's been good, and uh, God has blessed us. My father-in-law is a Christian who loves the Lord, and he also happens to be a research scientist. And God has called him into some pretty amazing things. He's an independent research scientist. And if you know him much about that field, if you're not in with the big wigs, you're not uh, palling around with the Harvard professors and all of that, it's not easy to get your work known. It's not easy to, especially if you're talking about Genesis and the Bible and that kind of thing as well, then you're really in trouble. Uh, so we feel God has called us to come and help him uh, to communicate to communicate the discoveries that he has made. It's a wonderful world God has made, and we haven't found it all out yet. Can you believe that? Sometimes we think we have, but there's a whole world out there to discover and find. And so we're privileged to be able to be a part of this, and we would appreciate your prayers for us as we uh, seek to uh, find open doors, churches, um, uh, schools, colleges, Christian colleges, homeschool groups, whatever, whoever might let us in to present this ministry that we are calling Truth in Time. Now, we're going to go just maybe a little bit longer today. Now, don't throw tomatoes yet at me. Keep, as my dad used to say, don't throw a hymn book at me. Um, we're, we're going to go a little longer today, maybe than normal, to squeeze all this in. And believe me, I've tried to cut and paste and squeeze, and, and I've done the best I can. But, uh, but just settle in there. And I told Pastor Josh, we are talking about the Exodus this morning, talking about Moses, and you know the story. But if I hear a voice from the crowd coming back from Pastor Josh's way saying, let my people go, <laughs> I'll know that it's probably time to shut this thing down. And uh, hopefully that won't happen. If there's a mass exodus while I'm preaching, I'll know I'm done. So anyhow, I'm kidding. We won't go that long, but maybe a little longer today. Let's pray real quick before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. God, you're good to us. And we are gathered here together in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, to talk about you, to talk about your word, to talk about history. It, Lord, history is yours. The word of God is yours. The world is yours. And Lord... A chronology and archaeology and all of this, God, is yours. And we may hit on some things today, Lord, you know, that uh, we wouldn't normally hear about on a Sunday morning. But God, we believe it's very important in the time that we live in. 
in our contemporary day. And so, God, I just pray you would lead us in all of these things. Show us, Lord, uh, the direction to go in every bit of this this morning. May you be glorified. May you be honored above all things. And, God, we just lift this prayer up to you this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are presenting this morning, what we are presenting, as John said a minute ago, is in the category of Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics. The, the dictionary definition of the term apologetics is a reasoned argument in justification of something, typically a theory or religious doctrine. A reasoned argument in justification of something. Pastor Josh has been teaching us uh, in Galatians, and we've been talking about the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul did much of this in his day with his contemporaries, meeting those people in that time where they were in order to bring to them the truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we feel like that the Lord has led us in some ways into that kind of a ministry, to meet our contemporaries in our day where they are with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some may say, well, really, do we really need this kind of a ministry today? Well, if you haven't noticed, we're in somewhat of a cultural crisis in the West today, in America, for sure. How many times have you heard of such things like a young person who's been in church all their life, has been raised in Sunday school and goes off to university or college and then suddenly it seems that they're just not there anymore. They're gone. Um, they've their faith has been shaken. Um, what happened? What, what's going on in the world today? Why would people quickly walk away from the church like that? Their faith has come under attack is what's happened. It's come under attack either directly or indirectly. And I want to share a little bit with you today that you may not be aware of as to how the, the, the faith is coming under attack today. I think one of the tricks and the deceptions of the enemy is to blind the eyes of believers to what's really going on in the real world. And part of the reason for that is nothing but fear. We, we, we become very fearful, and so we don't want to hear it. We can push it out of our hearts and minds and say, well, you know, I, I just don't want anything to do with that. I believe what I believe, and that's good enough for me. Well, you know, the truth is, if your faith is strong and you, you, you're, you have no doubts in your heart about the Word of God and about Christ and the Bible, praise God for that. And uh, the, the, we do believe. We believe by faith. Um, I've had people say, well, um, you know, I, I, I don't really need all of this proof of the Word of God apologetics. I just take it by faith. Well, that's good, but the problem with that is the Mormon could say the same thing. The Jehovah's Witness, the cult could say the same thing. I just take it by faith. What we have is real world in this book right here. This isn't myth. It isn't fairy tale. It isn't something somebody made up along the way. It's truth, and it can be found in the real world, and we're going to get more into that. But as a society, we have lost all sense of truth. We can't even tell today what's a man and what's a woman. We've lost all sense of truth in our society today. Why is this happening so much? Well, there are many reasons, but the biblical accounts have taken a serious beating over the last 75 years or so. Again, I think many people don't realize this. We're being told and we're being shown that the early Old Testament accounts of the Scripture, especially, are not true, that they're just myths. Now, I want to present to you today that the fact that, I believe the fact that, that they have good reason for what they're saying. You say, what? What are you talking about? Well, let me finish. Let me keep going. We are presenting today solid answers to difficult questions. 
Our desire is to strengthen the faith of God's people and bring the lost into the kingdom of Christ. We want to be able to win people who are seeking the truth, not just keep the ones that we have, which we want to do, but to win those without and bring them into the fold. God's word is true, but we do have to answer the hard questions. And sometimes we have to step out of our paradigm, our preconceived ideas, to get to those answers. Well, the first thing I want to put up on the screen here this morning from the Exodus, and by the way, we'll come back to the verse that you see there uh, quite often in our presentation, which says, And Pharaoh's servant said unto him, Knowest thou not, do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Egypt is destroyed. True stories are found in real world history. Let me repeat that. Again, I'll say that numerous times. True stories are found in real world history. Fairy tales are not. This is how we can distinguish between what's true and what's not. You can find a true story in the real world. The account of the Exodus in the scriptures, and by the way, if you want to turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 10, we're going to be all over Exodus, and most of my passages will be on the screen this morning. But if you'd like to turn there, Exodus 10 and verse 7 is the verse that we just read. The story of the Exodus is the account of God's work to redeem his people out from captivity, bringing them into the land that he had promised to them. Through this nation, he will bring the Redeemer into the world. It presents the defining features of the nation of Israel's identity. It is an account of utmost importance to so many people, even to the very foundation of the gospel message. Pastor Josh did a series in the book of Exodus, and we discussed these things in our, uh, our services. But you remember during that last plague where the death angel came through the land, and it was anyone who was behind the blood of the lamb. The blood was painted on the doorpost, and they had to go in that house, and the firstborn was safe when the judgment of God came through. But if they had not applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts, they were not safe from the judgment of God. And of course, that's the foundation of the very gospel message of the lamb, of Jesus, the lamb, Jesus Christ, who came and shed his blood for our sins. That account is in the story of the Exodus. It's a very important story, a very important account. The Bible presents this account as real world. The Bible presents it as real world history with real people in a real place and in real time. We learn some pretty amazing things in the story. An elderly man by the name of Moses, claiming to be sent from God, came into a great mighty nation demanding that the great king, the Pharaoh, let the people of God go from their slavery. This Pharaoh stubbornly refuses and God sends terrible national disasters upon the land. Within a short period of time, the land is afflicted with severe pollution of all the drinking water, uncontrollable infestation of frogs and insects and flies and lice, outbreaks of boils on the people, the death of the livestock, destruction of the forests and the standing crops by hail, complete destruction of the ground by locusts. No agricultural crops could have survived. Three days of total darkness and then the death of, the high, of a high percentage of the population. Very disastrous consequences, things going on in this nation. But that wasn't even the end of what this nation suffers. When the, the Pharaoh finally does let the people go, they walk out the gates with the wealth. They plundered the nation of Egypt. God gave that to them. And the entire slave population as well walks out the gates. The silver, the gold, the clothing. Later, the Pharaoh and his army change their mind. They go chasing after these people after they left. 
and the entire army ends up being drowned through a miraculous event. Obviously, all of these events would have left this nation in complete chaos. It would have been completely destroyed. At one point, as we saw a minute ago, Moses was warning of the coming of the plague of locusts. This wasn't even at the end of the plagues. This was kind of in the middle of them. And Pharaoh's servants say to him, Do you not yet know Egypt is destroyed? Destroyed. We then read of millions of people, Israelites and Egyptians among them, leaving the land of Egypt, heading into the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. A story of such magnitude... That should be easily found in our day of discovery, in our day of technology, in archaeology. We should be able to find this event in world history. If it is a true story. Again, the Bible presents it to be true to life, a true to life event. So here's the weight of the issue. The Exodus account, again, comes to us from the Bible. It doesn't come to us from a storybook. It doesn't come to us from fables. It comes to us from the Word of God. And of course, we are Bible believers. We know the stories and the accounts of the Bible to be true. We know the stories of Noah and the ark and David and Goliath. We sang about a little bit ago and on and on, Samson and even Jesus. And we believe the Bible by faith. However, are these events things that happened and took place in the real world? Did they happen? Either the events talked about in the Bible are real-world history or they're not. It's one or the other. And that's the great weight of the issue. And again, the question can be asked, well, is it important to have real-world history backing up the claims of the Bible? It's extremely important because what we believe is not a myth, it's not a fairy tale, and we're not part of a cult. It is important. Is God at work in the real world, or is it just floaty and spiritual and just a, as I call, churchy thing that's good for Sundays, a shot in the arm of positivity? No, it's more than that. It is the truth. We have in Christianity not fairy tales and myths. We're not part of a cult. It's real world history. And our faith can be strengthened, for sure, when we see these events described in Scripture in the real world world. So that's the weight of the issue. Here's the weight of the evidence. True stories in real history will have evidence in the physical world. Now we've all heard the Sunday school stories of when God brought Israel out of Egypt. We've seen the pictures. We've watched the Charlton Heston movie. Moses. I'm sure we've all seen that, right? We've wondered at the awesome plagues. It is an incredible story, but the Bible presents it as far more than just a story. It is presented as a historical account taking place in the real world, so we should be able to go back and find evidence for the events that it speaks of. Even ancient events, uh, uh, such as the Exodus, we should find evidence such as the Pharaoh who was in power. We've been looking for that Pharaoh for a long time. Who was he? Who was this particular Pharaoh in power during the time of the Exodus? We should be able to find pottery shards in the Sinai Desert that date to this time in question. We should be able to find the collapse of the kingdom of Egypt with such destructive forces that had gone through it, uh, the entire army being destroyed on and on. There are those, by the way, who study ancient history, such as Egyptologists, who devote their lives to this study, reconstructing 
these civilizations, these kingdoms, when they rose, when they fell, the evidence of various leaders and pharaohs, and on and on. So great. Let's get online. You probably have a phone there in your pocket somewhere, and we have a screen here. This technology so good today, we could probably get online right now here in church, and we could go and find the evidence of when the exodus happened. Surely the weight of evidence must be overwhelming due to such an event. But wait, there is a problem. We always have to present the problem before we present the good news. The problem is when we begin to research this, when we start to Google it and find it online, we find things like this. The entire Exodus story is recounted in the Bible, probably never occurred. Now you say, well, yeah, that's some atheist somewhere, somebody who hates God. I mean, that's the New York Times you've got up there on the screen. Of course they would say that. Well, the problem, though, is that's not a single lone statement out there. You could find all kinds of statements like this and articles and research being done. Here's another one. Now, this is from an Israeli magazine, a Jewish magazine called Haaretz.com. And it says this, there's no direct evidence that people worshiping Yahweh sojourned in ancient Egypt during the time the exodus is believed to have happened. Here's another quote. After, centuries of, after a century of excavations trying to prove the ancient accounts true, archaeologists say there is no conclusive evidence that the Israelites were ever in Egypt, were ever enslaved, ever wandered in the Sinai wilderness for 40 years, or ever conquered the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. To the contrary, the prevailing view is that most of Joshua's fabled military campaigns never even occurred. I can tell you today of rabbis, rabbis who have stood up in front of their own people and told them that the Jewish history they've always believed and passed down through their heritage is not even true, not even real. What are these people talking about? We know the Exodus did occur, and in just the way the Bible tells us that it did, I believed it all my life, I've always felt it in my heart, I mean, we believe these stories to be true. But remember, True stories are found in real-world history. Either the events talked about in the Bible are real, and they're real-world history, or they are not. So why do these people think that they have disproved it? Well, they cannot find it. They can't find it in the ground. The archaeologist's spade keeps digging up the dirt in our day of technology, and they think they cannot find it. But I want to submit to you today that we actually can find it. Hopefully, when we're finished here, you will see the evidence to be very overwhelming. So what do we need? What do we need to go about showing that the exodus really did occur? Well, we need to know two things. We need to know where in the world this happened. And that one's pretty easy for this account. It's happened in Egypt, and we know where Egypt is today. And we need to know when, when this happened. And that's the big question that we have. The when is the problem. The when is the issue. So, let's take our Bibles and let's look up the verse. Let's find the date of the Exodus right here in the Scripture. Wait a minute. There's a problem with that. There isn't one. You see, the Bible doesn't give us dates right when things happened in, in the Scriptures. It doesn't go and tell us on this date. I wish it did, but it doesn't. God knows what he's doing, right? Amen. But it doesn't tell us that. So, how do we figure this out? Well, we figure these things out through specialized fields, this one in particular, a scientific discipline called chronology, biblical chronology. 
Those who were saying these kind of statements that I just gave to you, they think that biblical chronology put together with the great advancements, and there are great advancements, in modern archaeology have proven that the Exodus never occurred and it likely is a fictitious story. And there is, we ad admit this morning, there is a problem here. But I submit to you that the problem today is not with this. The problem is not with the Word of God. And the problem is not with the archaeology. Sometimes as Christians, we can have a fault among us. We have a lot of them, don't we? And one of them is that we can just start bad-mouthing anybody who's saying something we don't like to hear. Well, the truth is there are a lot of very good, talented people out there who are just doing their job. And they're just finding what they're finding. And sometimes we as Christians have to scratch our heads for a minute and think, well, well, let's look into this. And if what we believe is really true, we don't need to have fear about it. We don't need to shove it under the rug. Let's figure out what is going on here. So the archaeology is not the problem. The Bible is not the problem. The problem here is in the chronology. The problem is in the when. When did this happen? So when do most biblical chronologists and scholars say that the Exodus took place? On the screen, I'm going to put up for you a timeline. This is a uh, vertical timeline. Often we're used to seeing horizontal, and I'll put one of those up in a minute. But, but So let me explain real quick what you're seeing. The black bar on the side are the dates. There's a zero there, which is when Christ came. All of history revolves around the coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool, by the way? Um, but Christ is right there at zero. We live right up at the top and actually going into the third millennium A.D. Isn't that something where you live today? Um, but if we go down on that timeline under the zero, we have the B.C. dates. And we have the first, second, third, fourth millenniums B.C. under the zero, just to kind of acclimate you there with the timeline. Well, proper, I'm, I'm sorry, popular traditional biblical chronology places the Exodus in the second millennium B.C. The dates are around 1450, 1446 B.C. Um, you may have heard the term Usher's chronology and some of these that, that are, that was, he gave us that chronology hundreds of years ago. Um, which, by the way, is bef much before the modern technology and discovery that we have today. But we as Christians still go by that same chronology. Um, and that's where, that's the time period where they place the Exodus. They've come to this date by chronology using key passages from the Bible that give time periods of Israel's history. These dates, when added up, bring you to the second millennium BC time period for the Exodus. Scholars have felt constrained to this time period, and this is where everyone has always looked. Because they believe this is where the Bible demands it to be. The question we're having this morning is, is that true? The biblical account of the Exodus, with all the chaos and the upheaval, would, as we have already said, have collapsed the kingdom of Egypt. Yet modern archaeology reveals that Egypt, in that second millennium that you see there on your screen was ruled by men like the mighty warrior Pharaoh, Tutmos III. The, the nation was experiencing during this time uninterrupted strength, flourishing, prosperity. And by the way, if you've had a young person go off to university studying these things, these are the very things that a professor's telling them. You've been raised to believe these accounts like the Exodus, but let me show you something. Here's where they say the Exodus happened, but during that very time, this is, the, this is the Pharaoh that was in power. 
Just after him, a little bit later in history, we, we have a, a Menephus three, And the prosperity of Egypt came to its full fruition under the rule of this Pharaoh. If the Exodus story is true to life, history, why would we expect to find this kind of evidence? Would we expect to find this kind of evidence of prosperity in Egypt during that particular time frame? Well, there's a house on 1450 B.C. Street that should have a giant elephant in the room for everybody to see. But as much as we've looked, it's not here. We can't find it. And this is why we have such statements all over the place that the entire Exodus accounts probably never even occurred. Well, that's kind of a bleak picture. Is there a way out of the dark? There is. The way out is what the next thing I want to present to you. Something new, a new approach, not a reiteration of traditional views, not at all. This view, number one, that I'm going to present to you now, number one, assumes right from the bat the historical integrity of the Bible, the historical integrity of the Scriptures. God's Word is true. Number two, it rejects all previous theories of the Exodus, both secular and sacred. And number three, it shows that God's true word and God's real world, they're both gods, by the way, they do harmonize without difficulty concerning the Exodus when one has their biblical chronology date of the Exodus right. What is going to be presented here is using a modern, corrected biblical chronology. And you can read about it more. I have only very limited time this morning, but if you're interested... There is a book, and I have a copy of it here, that uh, my father-in-law wrote, uh, Dr. Gerald Arzma, called A New Approach to the Chronology of Biblical History from Abraham to Samuel. The book is available. You can get it online. Uh, there's also a free copy of it you can download if you'd like to get on there and read more about these things that I'm presenting. So where do we find the Exodus? If the exodus occurred in history, there should be, once again, a full-grown elephant in the room, obvious to all, yet all investigators. We have searched, we've looked for this elephant under every cushion in every corner, and boy, have we searched on and on, and yet we found it completely empty of elephants. However, everyone's looking in the wrong room, at the wrong address. There is a live, full-grown elephant in the room in plain view for all to see, if they will only look in the right room. The elephant is not housed at 1450 BC Street or anywhere else in the second millennium where everyone's always looked. It is at 2450 BC in the third millennium, 1,000 years earlier. What we call this is the missing millennium. The new approach to biblical chronology is that there is a missing millennium in the biblical chronology, chronology of Scripture. Let me show you another timeline here just to briefly uh, show you what I'm talking about. Again, pass on through this here. Here's a, um, a horizontal timeline, and this, again, is a timeline of the Bible. Right there in the blue, you see Christ, and then in the green uh, is B.C. You have David and Samuel and the Exodus and Abraham and the flood. And then what we're saying is, this new approach, is that there is a thousand years missing between Samson and Samuel. Again, we call this the missing millennium. When that thousand years is placed back in there, 
This corrected biblical chronology, of course, then changes the dates. What was 2,000 is now 3,000. What was 3,000 is now 4 and all the way back. So this is quite a claim. As a matter of fact, it's such a claim that if we go inserting 1,000 years into chronology, if it's not true, we ought to be able to find out pretty quickly, right? Matter of fact, let me give you some observations here. Um, new discoveries, first of all, do sound crazy at first. They always do. We had to deal with this years ago with the rotation of the planets. Remember that? Uh, we all thought that the planets revolved around the Earth and had to find out one day when the technology became good enough and discovery got far enough along, we realized we were wrong about that thing. We even thought the Bible told us that it was true as Christians. But we had to change our paradigm, didn't we, when we found out more about God's world. This is the same thing. They sound crazy at first. Number two, this one careful, deliberate correction brings harmony, not just to one story, but across the board with biblical history. And then number three, you can't just go interjecting a thousand years into history willy-nilly and expect to get away with it. Try to do that between Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. See how you come out, or whatever historical event that you can think of. You can't just do that unless it's actually missing. When we put this thousand years between Samson and Samuel, there's immediately harmony where there previously was just chaos. Now, I don't have time today to go into the details as to how we get there. Let me just mention, there's a passage in 1 Kings 6.1. 1 Kings 6.1, if you want to write that down, that is a, it is a linchpin. It is a turning point in the scriptures for dating things. Um, and it's in that passage that we believe the problem lies. And uh, again, I don't have time to that. Get, get the book. Here's the book again uh, about uh, a new approach to biblical chronology, a biblical history, and um, where this missing millennium is found and how this happened. I'll just give that to you this morning. So let's talk about how this works. Let's talk about how this works, a witness to the truth. And that witness that we're presenting this morning is the Exodus, the account of the Exodus. For the rest of our time, I want to show you how the Exodus account from Scripture matches perfectly with the real, true-to-life history when you get to the correct address. We're going to look at three synchronisms. A synchronism is, uh, it brings together the account from the Bible, the major account from the scriptures with the real life event or individual that matches it. And we're going to look at three of those this morning, very quickly, that I believe give irrefutable evidence of the Exodus in and around 2450 BC, not 1450 BC. The Exodus in real world history. You know the story of how God brought Joseph out from his family. You know the account of how he was brought into Egypt and sold into slavery and, and the beginnings of the nation of Israel. And then Joseph brings his father and brothers in, and they are in that land for over 400 years. Through all of this, God brings Jacob and his sons into Egypt, and they were fruitful, and they increased greatly, over a million or more of them. The Bible says in that scripture that you see there on the screen that the land was filled with them. God is up to something. Folks, God knows how to write a story. He's been writing a story for a long time. It's all His story. We call it history, right? It's His story. You're a part of it. You're in it today, and it's the real world. 
God is up to something in this day. The Bible tells us that trouble began for the Israelites in Egypt when a new Pharaoh comes to power, which knew not Joseph. Exodus 1, 8 through 9, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, and he says to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So synchronism number one, who was this Pharaoh? The Pharaoh, we call him the Pharaoh of the oppression. Who was he? Was there anything about him that could give us a clue as to how to identify him in history? The Bible says that the Israelites, uh, in Exodus 1.11, um, he enslaved them and later began a program of infanticide, Exodus 1.15-16, in order to limit their population growth. Moses is born under the rule of this Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 2. He's nearly killed by the infanticide of this man and was eventually rescued and raised by this Pharaoh's own daughter, Exodus 2, 1 through 10. After Moses grows up, it is this Pharaoh that he flees from after he murders an Egyptian. Moses lives on the backside of the desert for 40 years. He marries, he has children, and he gets his instructions from the Lord as to what he is to do. And he does not return to Egypt until this Pharaoh has died, Exodus 2, 11 through 4, 20. By this time, Moses was around 80 years old, Exodus 7, 7. This means that the Israelites suffered under this particular Pharaoh for nearly 100 years. There's a clue to the length of the reign of this Pharaoh in Exodus 2, 23. My microphone doesn't like what I'm saying this morning. Just use this one? Okay. There we go. Let's turn me up a little bit there. So, this means, again, that the Israelites suffered under this Pharaoh for nearly 100 years. Exodus 2, verse 23 says, And it came to pass in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died in the course of those many days. Now, the Pharaoh of the oppression, and again, we're taking the Bible at face value here. The Pharaoh of the oppression would have had an unusually long reign. He ruled for more than 80 years. So there's a great way to identify this particular Pharaoh in secular Egyptian history. By the way, this reminds us of an event in our day, doesn't it? Uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, just recently passed away, who was in her position for, I believe, 70 years. And what a long time to be the queen. Well, this guy has her beat. More than 80 years. Were there any pharaohs that had such a long reign in Egypt's history? Along the lines of more than 80 years. Well, there's no pharaoh of Egypt who reigned for 80 years or more anywhere in the second millennium B.C. But... There is a ruler of Egypt who lived in the 3rd millennium B.C. who is reported to have ruled more than 80 years. Let me put up a slide for you. <clears throat> this is a chart of 190 kings of Egypt, pharaohs. Does anything on this chart stick out to you? We used to have a song that I learned as a kid from Sesame Street. Some of you may remember it. One of these kids is doing his own thing. You all remember that song? Remember that? One of these kids is doing his own thing up here. One of these guys has a long reign 
From secular history, we know this. Who is that king? His name is Pepi II, sometimes called Phiops II. He ruled, now listen to this, for 94 years. This Pharaoh ruled. <clears throat> Ancient Egyptian historian Manetho has reported that he came to the throne at age six. And he died in his 100th year of life, having reigned for 94 years. One ruler in history with this length of a reign, ruling in Egypt, ruling in the third millennium at just the right time when our chronology would expect a very long reigning Pharaoh. So to recap on this, the Bible tells us when taken at face value that there was a Pharaoh who reigned and he, his reign lasted for more than 80 years. A reign of more than 80 years is extremely rare. This is the only Pharaoh of Egypt recorded by secular history to have reigned more than 80 years. This Pharaoh reigns in the third millennium BC where our chronology expects this long reign. So it would certainly seem like and likely that this Phiops II or Pepi II was the Pharaoh of the oppression. But we have two more synchronisms to go. And the, truth, the, the proof will just keep coming. So synchronism number one, let me get through my slides that I missed here. Synchronism number one is the Pharaoh of the oppression. Synchronism number two is going to be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Who was that guy? Who was the Pharaoh that was in power when Israel actually left the land of Egypt? Exodus 5.1 says, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. And no, it wasn't Charlton Heston. And the Pharaoh of the day was not Yul Brenner, even though those pictures are in our minds in modern day America today. But who was he? Was there anything about him? That could give us a clue as to how to identify him. Well, this fellow was just as oppressive as his predecessor. But this time, it was short-lived. God was about to display his awesome power on the head of this Pharaoh and his nation. Moses and Aaron request that the people be allowed to observe a three-day holiday in the wilderness that the Lord was requiring of them. But this Pharaoh boldly and bluntly states, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord. Well, he's about to meet him. He has no intention of obeying God. You know, there's something that we can mention here. Every knee will eventually bow to the true and living God. Amen? Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ one day. It doesn't matter if you're Pharaoh or the president or the queen of England or whoever you are. We all will bow before the Lord. And Pharaoh will too. Well, what follows is a series of national disasters on Egypt with warnings from God and opportunities to avoid the disasters by complying with God's demands for letting the people go into the wilderness to sacrifice to him. The Pharaoh of the Exodus continues to respond with belligerence, demands, compromise, mistreatment of God's messengers, repeated lying, on and on. And then God struck the Egyptians in that final plague with the death of the firstborn of every home. After that took place, this Pharaoh commands the Israelites to get out, leave immediately. Well, they do. And after plundering the Egyptians, the Israelites leave only to have this Pharaoh then chase after them a number of days later. He changes his mind, he gathers his army, and he went into the desert to bring the Israelites back. He thinks he has them trapped against the sea, but the Israelites make a miraculous escape 
by the power of God through the sea. Exodus chapter 14. This Pharaoh with his army goes into the sea to chase after the people. But the waters return to their normal state. And the Pharaoh of the Exodus and his Egyptian army are drowned. The Bible says, And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. Exodus 14, 28. But the Lord overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. Psalm 136, verse 15. So the Pharaoh of the Exodus, how could we identify him? The successor to Pepi or Phiops II should have a very brief reign. Did this Pharaoh have a brief reign? Who was the successor to Phiops or Pepi II? He was a Pharaoh, a man by the name of Merenre et Yimsaf II. History does not record the manner of this man's death, but it does record that his reign lasted one year. Here's a couple of quotes. Phiops II is followed in the Abydos list by a Merenre, who was also called Entyemsaph. The name is broken off in the Turin canon where the length of reign is given as one year. That's from W. Stevenson Smith. Another quote from Wikipedia says, Merenre Netyamsaf, it's the same person too, short-lived Pharaoh, possibly an aged son of Pepi or Phiops II, reigned one year and one month. A straightforward reading of the biblical narrative points to a Pharaoh with an extraordinarily long reign, followed by a Pharaoh with a very short reign. There is no other such lineup in ancient secular Egyptian history than these two Pharaohs. So synchronism number one, the Pharaoh of the oppression. Synchronism number two, the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But it doesn't stop there. Synchronism number three, the collapse of Egypt. Again, Exodus chapter 10 and verse 7 says, And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, Do you not yet know that Egypt is what? Destroyed. Destroyed. Knowing the destruction that took place during the ten plagues that God brought on this nation, would we not assume that these calamities would bring an overall collapse of the nation? Only part of the way through his servants say Egypt is destroyed. But again, this was not the end of what Egypt suffered at the time of the Exodus. When they left, as we've already mentioned, they took the wealth of the kingdom with them. The Pharaoh and his army are completely destroyed. And the slave population walks out the gates, the labor force. Exodus would have been in complete and utter chaos utter ruin. Again, the problem with the traditional timeline is that the second millennium BC in the history of Egypt shows nothing like this. Roughly the opposite of utter ruin is what one finds at the traditional dates, 1450 BC. A more unlikely setting could not be found for the Exodus in the entire history of Egypt. But in sharp contrast, when we move or when we look in the right house, when we get the date right, the elephant is right there in the room for everyone to see, and the utter ruin of Egypt is found immediately following the reign of the Pharaoh Merenre et Yimsaf II. The great old kingdom of Egypt comes to an end at the end of the sixth dynasty, and there begins a centuries long period of utter chaos which the scriptures, I'm sorry, which scholars call the first intermediate period. 
Secular historians are unsure of what caused the sudden collapse of Egypt's old kingdom, but when the chronology is corrected, the Bible gives us the answer. It was the Exodus. It was the collapse, Nicholas Grimmel says, it was the collapse of the whole society. And Egypt itself had become a world in turmoil in his book called A History of Ancient Egypt. I found a quote on Wikipedia. It says, whatever its cause, the collapse of the old kingdom was followed by decades of famine and strife. An important inscription on the tomb of Antifi, a monarch during the early first intermediate period, describes the pitiful state of the country when famine stalked the land. The second millennium BC history of Egypt displays nothing like this. So synchronism number three, the old kingdom comes to an end and an interval of chaos begins called the first intermediate period. So now we have three synchronisms against all odds. One monarch recorded in all human history who reigned over 90 years, meeting the requirements of the biblical account, ruling over no other country than Egypt, and at no other time than in the middle of the third millennium BC. We have a monarch immediately following with a very brief reign, one year, because he drowned in the Red Sea, by the way, meeting the requirements of the biblical account, unique pair of pharaohs only happening once in ancient Egypt. Back to back, beautifully fitting the Exodus account. And then we have right on its tail the very time in Egypt's history when the nation enters into a time of utter chaos. The great old kingdom collapses immediately following the reign of these two monarchs meeting the biblical requirements of the account. What are the odds that we insert a thousand years into biblical chronology and the story of the Exodus matches up so well with real world history. I ought to be done. I have to stop. But let me just mention, it doesn't stop here. I could show you today all kinds of things that this corrected chronology actually does. We could talk about pottery shards in the Sinai Desert, leaving a trail, a very obvious trail, of a whole multitude of people going through the wilderness when you get the dates corrected. I could show you where the real Mount Sinai is. We've been looking for that for a long time. I'm not gonna tell you its name, but you need to get Dr. Arzna's book to find it out or get on our website. I could probably show you who Joseph is in the scripture. Is it Imhotep? Many believe it was. If it is, our corrected chronology puts him right at the right time that he should be in. What about the great pyramids? Who built them? And where in the world did Egypt get the finances and the money to build those unbelievable pyramids, which were built in the old kingdom, by the way? Well, the idea could be that they got them from the time of Joseph and all of that famine that was coming when Joseph gathered in all of that wealth of the land. We could go on and on. But again, here's a book, another book that you're welcome to get if you'd like, and you can download it for free again on the internet. The Exodus Happened, 2450. BC. By the way, if you, would, if you would be interested about more about these things, I would encourage you to get on our mailing list. Uh, we send out an email, Jennifer and I do, uh, with a newsletter and a um, uh, podcast that we're doing now. And as a matter of fact, I think we brought a notebook with us. If you would like to get on that and you're not, uh, get with us and we will put you on that as well. The Exodus is not the only biblical event that, that aligns with secular data with this new chronology. Um, there's other evidences for the missing millennium. 
Uh, I do sessions on Jericho, the Battle of Jericho and the Battle of Ai. Sessions on Noah's Flood. Yes, we can find that in real world history. And we could go on and on today. I've got to be done. But in conclusion, let me just mention this. We are presently living in a cultural crisis in the West. There are numerous reasons for this. But I do believe one major reason, reason is a turning away from the scriptures due to the perception that they are just simply not based in reality. The Bible, the Old Testament especially, has taken a beating the last 75 years with modern discovery. One thing that separates Christianity, as we've already mentioned, from all other religions is the fact that it's based in real world history. But scripture, again, has taken a beating and we've been presented with some hard questions. Some have just decided to ignore the questions and sadly many have turned away from the faith. But there are answers. We just have to be willing to listen with humility, with an open mind and an open heart. And let's be reminded this morning that the great I am, he still is the great I am. As we sang a little bit ago, behold our God. He is so evidently at work in ancient history and he is still at work today. Nations rise and nations fall at his command. The heavens and the earth truly are his. He truly did send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on an old rugged cross and pay the penalty for sin for all who will believe on him. And we truly can believe on him. He's given us every evidence that we need to know that what we hold in our hands and what we believe in our hearts is the truth. It is the truth. The great I am is the God of history. It's all his story. Aren't we beyond privilege today to have a part in it? It wasn't a fairy tale back then. It's not a fairy tale today. He's the God of the spoken world, and He's the God of the spoken word, and He's the God of real world history. As we've been challenged by our pastor in recent weeks, let's take this truth, let's take this message out here into this world, and let's give people the gospel that they so desperately need. Let's change our culture. Let's go to people, whether they have the hard questions or not, and let's bring them the truth of the word of God, of Jesus Christ, and of this glorious gospel message. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today for these moments that we have had together. And Lord, I know we've gone a little bit longer than normal, but I just pray that you will help us to see the importance of these things. And God, maybe there are people in our lives, maybe some of the folks sitting out here today, they know people who have turned from the faith, and they don't really know why. Maybe, Lord, it's just simply sin in their lives. God, maybe there's a multitude of reasons, but, Lord, it could be that they, their faith has been shook by things that we've talked about even here today. And I pray that, Lord, maybe the things we presented would be something that folks could look into more and spread around and pass on to people who are in great need of it. And, God, I pray that it will be strengthening to our faith today to see that these things we have in the Bible really are true. They really happened. You really are God. And most of all today, I pray, Lord, that you have been glorified and honored in what we've said today. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.